Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. For this episode, as it's February and Valentine's Day is advertised practically everywhere, I'm going to tell you about a few stories that took place around this date and the stories aren't long enough to make them into an episode each. So today I'm going to tell you a couple of unconnected murders and a disappearance. So, Caitlin, I'm not going to ask the usual question because you don't even know what I'm about to talk about. So I actually I, have no clue. Sorry. Yeah. So I'll just begin. <laughs> you can uh, you can let me know your thoughts after each one. There's only three. Now I'm going to start with the disappearance of 31 year old Helen Rosemary Hooper. Rosemary Draper, that was her maiden name, was born in Essex in 1945 and lived with her mum Mary and her dad George. There isn't really much online that I can find about her early life, so that's all I have to say there. Sometime in 1961, at the age of 16, Helen met pet shop owner Walter Hooper, who was nearly 50 years old. They both fell in love and married in 1962, when Helen was 17 and Walter 51. Walter already had a son and a daughter from a previous marriage and him and Helen went on to have three children together, Tony, Geoffrey and Michael. To begin with, Helen helped Walter Walter out at his pet shop that he owned because obviously she had three boys at home as well. However, by the mid-70s, Walter was suffering from bad back pain and so he retired he would have been around retirement age at that time anyways, if my math is correct. I think he would have been about 60, um, which back then was probably a retirement age, whereas now we'll all have to be about 90. Now, after retirement, Walter and Helen moved the family to the hamlet of Broken Green near Standin in Hertfordshire, where Helen taught at nearby Handham Hall School. By this time, Helen was in her late 20s, and it's said that she had her head turned by quite a few of the male colleagues at the school. Her marriage wasn't doing too great. Her eldest child had just become a teenager. Her husband was retired, and they were at different stages of their life. It may be that when she first married Walter at the age of 17 and he was 51, they were already at different stages of their lives. And she was kind of still developing into herself and possibly grew into someone different than they both expected. Now, Helen was able to finally gain some independence, also with her sons being older and Walter now being retired, which is why she took the job at the school. Helen had an affair with Colleen John Colleen with a colleague, sorry, John Doyle. However, this was just kissing and cuddling that John confirmed that they had never had sex. I thought you were going to say it's a woman called Colleen. I was like, this is such drama. <laughs> this took a twist. I was like, oh, I love a lesbian drama. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, it was a John. Now, the second was Colin Clark. Now, it's Colin, not Colleen Clark. Colin Clark. This was more of a serious relationship and it's believed that Helen was planning to move in with him. That is when things take a turn for the worst. On the 14th of February 1976, Helen Hooper headed out of the house in the morning 
and was never seen again. So Helen, she was 31. She went missing from her home in Hertfordshire and Walter didn't seem worried when Helen didn't arrive home and he only called the police when her parents insisted that he do so. Now the police believed that Helen had planned to move in with Colin and it's thought that she was going to tell Walter about this on the 13th of February 1976, so the day before she disappeared. And investigators also believe that she never met Colin as planned on the 14th of February. And also later on um, in like police custody, etc., Colin confirms that she never ever met up with him. And that they had a deep relationship, you know, they were in love, they were gonna like build a life together. So there's no way that she would disappear and not tell him where he's going or if you know if she was to turn up a few days later that she'd be like oh I was here like there's there's just no explanation for it at all so Hertford put oh Hertfordshire police charged Walter Hooper with her murder in June 1976 and at a magistrate's hearing in October 1976 the prosecution said one of their sons woke in the night to hear his parents arguing which look it's not something that doesn't happen you know parents do argue and it was also reported though that their relationship was actually pretty difficult and she had tried to leave him three times already and also one of the children stood up in court and confirmed that Walter threatened to do away with her when in the past she tried to leave and take the children with her so the kids know know this the kids know this and one of the kids the eldest admitted this in the court now the eldest at the time may have only been like 13 or 14 you know so Walter and her they they weren't in a good relationship at all and I'm guessing Walter was probably abusive whether whether it was physical or emotional I don't know but at the hearing uh Colin as well he admitted that he, he was attracted to her and on three separate occasions Helen came to his house and Helen even told her parents that she was leaving Walter for Colin No one really knows what happened on the 13th and the 14th of February, though. However, there are two stories. The first being that Walter said a man came to the house in a car on the morning of the 14th and Helen got in and she never came home. He didn't know who the man in the car was. And when told about Colin, he said he knew nothing about him and that he doesn't understand where she has gone. The second story... Yes. Now, the second story, though, is that on the night of the 13th of February, Helen went to tell Walter that she was leaving him for good. Sometime after that, Walter kills Helen, hides her body somewhere where she will never be found. The children wake up in the morning when he tells them that she's went shopping. Now, remember, though, they've moved to practically the middle of nowhere. There's fields everywhere around. So there are places where Helen's body could be put and literally never be found again. After an eight-day hearing, the magistrates ruled, though, that there was no case for Walter Hooper to answer. So he told the press he was absolutely overjoyed at the justified verdict, and that, quote, the last few months had been a nightmare. No one else has been charged with her murder, but the police case review team has kept the inquiry open. 
so it's still a cold it's a cold case but you know it's still open so if you have anything obviously go forward with it but in 2021 a force spokeswoman said no unresolved case is ever closed and it will continue to be subject to review in light of any new information and or intelligence. We'd, we would welcome any information regarding the disappearance and murder of Helen and would act on it accordingly. Irrespective of the, pa of the passage of time, we would still very much like to understand the circumstances surrounding Helen's disappearance and identified who was responsible for her murder. Now, Walter Hooper died in 1996, maintaining his innocence, and Helen Hooper remains missing to this day. Was the case done? Was there enough done in the case? Was she, like, there wasn't a search, huge search party or anything like that? Colin even said that the day after he had reported her missing as well, and they practically didn't act upon it until June time. So February to June, that's a long period. Um... But yeah, that's the short story about the disappearance of Helen Hooper. And there's hardly any information online about it. But literally, I just think there's no case. Like, they, they didn't even go looking for her, you know? You don't just disappear into thin air. No, no you exactly. Don't, just don't come back. And I hate that when it's just like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, someone knows. So you know you can definitely look into that more but you hear that all the time so with missing people cases that people like the police take days or whatever they say you can't report it in x amount of time so that's probably what's happened that they've just thought like oh well she's not come back she's been having affairs she's somewhere and that's exactly what it'll be yeah exactly and I know it was the 70s so it was obviously much easier to disappear but you'd think you would then take Colin your lover with you but anyway we move on from that one. Um, I've got a very short one, but it'll only take two seconds to read, but it's very brutal and completely like oofed, awful. Now, 46-year-old canal worker Brian Ted's stabbed to death his ex-partner, who was 36, Debbie Hodgkiss, and Daniel Stanninforth, who was also 36, on the 14th of February 2004 in Leicestershire. Brian had actually mistook Daniel for Debbie's new boyfriend. However, I don't believe he was. Debbie had just been staying with Daniel after leaving Brian, who had a violent past. So she had left Brian because he was violent towards her. Now, Brian had waited for them both at Daniel's flat in Barwell after hearing that they had been seen together at the local pub. Daniel died almost instantly after Brian stabbed him with a fishing knife, severing his jugular vein. He then stabbed De Debbie nine times, causing injuries from which she died the following day. So she didn't die straight away. Now, Judge Michael Stokes QC said he had no doubt Brian intended to kill both, adding that the attack on Debbie was particularly brutal. So at the end of the day, he was mainly going for Debbie. He was taking out all his violence on him. And because of this, Brian, who had previous convictions for violence as well, he was given a life sentence and told he must serve at least 20 years before being eligible for parole. So to date, he is still in prison. However, in 2004, that is almost 20 years, which absolutely gives me the bulk because I was going to be like, that was about 10 years ago. <laughs> but anyway... Um, so he's still in prison. That was the short, shortest story ever. But it was just to show 
these things are happening all the time like getting stabbed or taking out your anger and things and killing people just because you got like you left this person and they've moved on or anything like that so that was a brutal murder there Lastly, though, I'm going to tell you about the murder of 22-year-old Joanne Nelson. Now, I don't know if you've maybe heard of this one, Caitlin. I don't think so. The name's not ringing a bell, but again, you might start and I might be like, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, a few bells were rang when I was looking into it, but yeah, again with me, same old, same old. I never know what I'm talking about. Now, Joanne Nelson, though, she was described as a bubbly, bright, loving young woman. She was well liked and had a good friendship group. From school, Joanne went to train as a nurse. However, she had to give that up as it was just too upsetting and she'd come home more often than not crying from, you know, the six patients that she encountered because she just couldn't handle it. Now, Joanne, though, got accepted to volunteer in Ghana with an overseas non-profit to help in countries that faced extreme poverty. So, you know, she was a very kind person and she, she enjoyed life. She loved her family and she was very family orientated and wished for one of her own one day. So she thought she may have found the person to live this life with, Paul Dyson. Paul Dyson was born in August 1974 and he grew up in Hull with his parents and siblings. As far as anyone could tell, there was no indications to say that Paul wouldn't grow up to be a kind, caring, loving man. However, this was not the case. Paul showed no violence towards others in his early years, but his father, Peter, was the opposite. In 1967, when Peter was 22 years old, he stabbed a man with a kitchen knife over a relationship he had with his wife, and he was sentenced to seven years in prison. He also killed 47-year-old Gordon Kell in a road traffic accident, but he managed to avoid prosecution I can't find any dates or any further information on that one. I really don't know why he managed to avoid prosecution. If there was something in there, like a caveat or anything like that, I'm not sure. But he's killed a man. Paul left school, though, at the age of 16, and he went to college and he obtained a diploma in civil engineering. He later went on and got a diploma in national, I can never say this word, horticulture. Horticulture. Now, whilst at, the, it, yeah. Yeah, whilst at the Horticulture College, he met a girl called Kerry Thompson, who would later tell the police that he used to pace up and down, hitting her and grabbing her to stop her leaving when they had arguments. And they eventually split up. He spent a few months living with his father in Saudi Arabia at the age of 17, working in general maintenance. And he went on to become a gardener. And then he became a machinist at M&Co Pine and Furniture Shop in Hull when he moved back from Saudi Arabia. Peter had gotten Paul into kickboxing from a young age, so when he was about 15, and he was really good at it. And then by his late teens, Paul had also gotten into bodybuilding. And by the 2000s, he was also taking steroids to help his performance. Now, in 1999, Paul met Jenny Marie Clark, where only after two weeks of meeting, Paul proposed to her and they went on to have a daughter together called Claire in October 2000. In 2002, Paul and Jenny split up and filed for divorce later that year. 
They split up because they were always arguing. And they would also have multiple rows in public, which became very aggressive. And it just became too much. Shortly after, in 2003, Paul met Joanne Nelson. They met on a night out in Hull at the Mint Body Bar and Club, where Paul worked as a bouncer. Now, he's got that big, strong physique as well, like, you know, picture your bouncer. So I guess that's maybe what attracted them to each other. I'm not sure. Now, when they met, though, Paul was 27 and Joanne was 19. They dated for a while and then they moved in together. At this time, Joanne was unaware of his behaviour towards his previous partners and his ex-wife. She didn't know about his misuse of the steroids or know about his dad's past, as Peter had actually passed away three years prior to the meeting. And the death of Paul's father devastated him as he idolised his father, even with his past and his violence. So Paul never, ever shared that with Joanne, which in itself is a red flag, because if Joanne had known that information, she might not have stuck around for as long. You never know. But Paul treated Joanne well and she had the perfect family and boyfriend. However, this soon changed. On the 14th of February 2005, two years into the relationship, Joanne failed to turn up for work. Paul reported her missing to police at 9pm that evening, claiming they exchanged Valentine's cards in the morning and then he had left for work whilst she stayed in bed. On the police call, he said that he'd been trying to get a hold of her on the phone, but no answer, and no one else has heard from her. He assumed that she was at work today, but, you know, he got home and her car was parked up the road. The doors to the house were unlocked, but she was nowhere to be seen. He said that there had been no arguments and that this was completely out of character for her. A few days later, the people close to Joanne were becoming increasingly concerned for her safety. She hadn't contacted anyone, had missed her best friend's dad's funeral and hadn't called her sister to wish her a happy birthday. The whole time, Paul acted like a loving, grieving boyfriend. And on the 16th of February, he gave a television appeal where he broke down in tears, begging for Joanne to come home. He told reporters that he loved her to bits and would never do anything to hurt her. The following day, her parents gave a heartfelt and emotional appeal at a press conference in Hull and they pleaded for her safe return. Now, I heard um, parts of that as well, and it was just heartbreaking because it was like her mum was doing the talking and she couldn't she couldn't complete it with all the tears and stuff. It was I just hate watching those sorts of things. Now, on the 18th of February 2005, Paul was arrested for the murder of Joanne, even with no body having been found. Paul was adamant that he was not guilty and that she must be alive. The police, though, were just not buying his story. They used forensic analysis to an analyse their interview with him. And this is how they ended up coming to the conclusion that he had murdered Joanne. Throughout the interview, Paul was very clearly trying to squeeze out tears to play the concerned and upset boyfriend. But former detective superintendent Ray Higgins, who was analysing the interview, knew that he was speaking to Joanne's killer. He said at the moment he said of the moment he first knew, quote, the moment of Dyson's television interview was very similar in many respects to the one he gave me. He stuck to the same story. Although he was very distressed and very tearful, he was also very deliberate in what he said. In the interview, there was two marks on his thumbs. 
I knew from dealing with previous assaults and murders that involve strangulation, the first thing a victim will try and do is pull those hands away from their neck. Sometimes in doing so, they can leave sort of crescent-shaped fingernails in the skin of the offender, and certainly in this case, the news crew zoomed in on Dyson's hands. You could quite clearly see what appeared to me to be similar crescent-shaped marks on the back of his thumbs. A huge manhunt ensued with more than 60 police officers, army volunteers, divers and search and rescue teams searching hundreds of miles of countryside in Yorkshire for Joanne's body. On the 17th of March 2005, a black handbag was found on a railway line just under a mile from where they both lived, which police believed belonged to Joanne. By this point, the police were certain that Paul had killed Joanne. However, they did not expect Paul's mum to come forward to them and confess that she was confident that her son killed Joanne. When asked how she was positive about this, she revealed that Paul had told a good friend in confidence that he strangled Joanne. This friend did the right thing and went straight to his mum about this, who then went straight to the police. When the police confronted Paul with this information, he admitted that he had lied and then confessed to killing Joanne, but claimed that he couldn't remember where he had left her body. The only thing he could remember was it was near a metal gate, possibly with blue bottles around it. The police spent hours and hours driving Paul around Yorkshire to see if he could remember which gate. They brought in forensic ecologist Professor Patricia Wiltshire, who had worked on the Soham murders that you covered a few months ago, Caitlin. And she's also worked on many other cases as well. Professor Wiltshire, she's very talented and she is able to use her tools and knowledge to link parts of nature to crime scenes. And she can find where certain soils will be. Um, if you had something in your car and it was a certain flower or anything like that, she could then be like, right, so these are the areas where you'll need to search. Because yeah, this I remember is what her from like. the same case. She's a very, very intelligent woman. Yeah, she's brilliant. So when Professor Wiltshire got access to Paul's car, his footwear and the garden fork, she was able to predict that Joanne won't be buried, but that she'll be in a hollow covered in birch twigs. Like, that's just brilliant that she can put this picture together from practically dirt with what she found. So with this information the police were able to narrow down the search and they looked at you know loads of maps and things like that as well to where birch trees grow and where to expect the certain types of soils and this led them to Castle Howard and North York. Detective Superintendent Ray Higgins with his um, fellow officer he um, held he was the head of the investigation and when he went out searching for the next search location on the 24th of March 2005, he came across a gate that matched the description that Paul had said. They came to a large dip and the first shape they saw was of a bin bag that had been taped up. As Joanne had, that had been out in the elements for around six weeks, her body was badly decomposed. So they had to, they didn't, they assumed it was Joanne, but obviously they had to bring her back for an autopsy where they then confirmed it was in fact Joanne and that she had been strangled to death. Now they had found her in a black bag in a ditch covered in birch twigs. So 
It led to belief that tensions had been building in the relationship in the months leading up to Joanne's murder. This was mainly due to Paul's laziness around the house. They also had frequent arguments about their careers. Joanne was progressing in hers and she talked about travelling the world one day. However, Paul struggled to hold down any jobs that he managed to get and they were pretty poorly paid. He didn't just have himself to support either. Remember, he has his daughter from his first marriage, which Joanne was never against. You know, she was pushing Paul to be like, look, you need to get a good job and support yourself and your daughter. Now, it's believed that on the 14th of February 2005, Joanne confronted Paul about his inability to turn on a washing machine. Remember, he's in his late 20s. He should be able to clean up after himself by now. Now, during this discussion, Paul burst into a complete rage where they had a full on argument and they spoke about breaking up and even selling the house. At some point during this argument, Paul ended up strangling Joanne to death walked to the corner shop where he bought bin bags, rubber rubber gloves and disinfectant. He then drove to his mum's house to borrow her garden fork. When he got home, he then had a calm conversation with one of his neighbours, asked how his holiday was, confirmed that Joanne was doing well and that they were thinking of getting a cat together. Paul put Joanne's body in the bin bag. He taped up her feet and her arms and then taped up the bag and carried her out to his car in the broad daylight where he went and got petrol and then drove 75 miles to dump her body. He then went home, got rid of her work clothes, called her phone a couple times and went to work. At work he also staged a conversation over his telephone with Joanne to make it look like she was still alive. Joanne's funeral took place in May 2005 where 200 people attended to say their goodbyes. On the 5th of November 2005, Paul Dyson admitted to the murder of Joanne Nelson. The hearing only lasted three minutes as it consisted of Paul confirming his name and stating his plea of guilty. Paul Dyson was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 16 years before parole. However, in October 2019, Paul was moved, moved to an open prison. In the UK, open prisons are often part of a rehabilitation plan for prisoners moved from closed prisons. So they may be they may be designated like training prisons and they're only used for prisoners considered a low risk to the public. This was an outrage when this happened and Joanne's family were completely shocked and upset that he was getting put into something like that because of what he had done to obviously their daughter and their sister etc and Paul was later released from prison in April 2022 after serving 17 years in prison which he only served one year over his minimum sentence so that makes you go on to the whole conversation of is life life was he you know rehabilitate like was he fine not fine but I mean did he learn his lesson you never know um but that's the story of Joanne Nelson do you have any thoughts Caitlin no wow like I completely get what you mean though with the whole like life is life it's never life no it's like two years with good behavior practically in the UK but alas that's that's another conversation (laughs) that's for another episode 